All right, we're going to be in, back in James chapter 2, James chapter 2, verses 1 to 13, if you'll turn there. Uh, it's good to be back. Uh, I appreciate Pastor Scott filling in last week, very last minute, and uh, I've missed you guys. So we're glad to be back and praise the Lord for health in the household, and we appreciate all of your prayers. That was really, the Lord answered them. So... Let's read, uh, continuing in our sermon and uh, series in James, James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? but you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. James is teaching us that holding the faith in Christ is incompatible with partiality. And conversely, that people with a living faith, a faith of integrity in Christ, will be people of mercy. So I talk about partiality and mercy because James is showing us that that's Mercy is partiality's opposite, right? So when we talk about uh, partiality, its opposite isn't a neutral sort of approach. It's an actual positive act of mercy. So as I was studying the text this week, uh, two stories from the Old Testament came to mind and I couldn't shake them. So I thought I would tell those two stories briefly this morning to help us understand what James is getting at. In both stories, there's um, a guest and there's a host, and this host invites the guest to their table and lavishes them with kindness. But one shows partiality as their kind, and one shows mercy as their kind. So the, f the first story is uh, from Genesis 24, 24, 29-ish, somewhere in there. Um, verse 29, I mean. And this is Abraham is looking for a wife for his son, Isaac. So Abraham sends his servant loaded up with all sorts of rich uh, gifts. He sends him off to, I think, the far north where his uh, distant family lives. And 
this servant then meets uh, Isaac's wife, Rachel, Rebecca. It's Rebecca, not Rachel, sorry. I'm married to a Rebecca, you'd think I'd know that. So the servant then encounters Rebecca and he gives her then as the one who clearly is, you know, the, the one the Lord wants to marry Isaac, he gives her all of these gold rings and bracelets and all of this rich jewelry. So Rebecca goes and tells her brother, the head of the household that she's in, whose name is Laban. And Laban comes out and he looks, well, let me read from the text. It's better that way. Um, Genesis 24, verse 30 to 31. As soon as Laban saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms and heard the words of Rebekah, his sister, thus the man spoke to me. He went to the man and behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. He said, come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? I've prepared the house and a place for the camels. As soon as Laban saw the jewelry, oh, you must be very blessed. Come into my house. I will be very kind to you. He was quick to show hospitality to the servant and invite him to his table when he thought it could get him something. That's partiality. By showing kindness to this man, I can get something for myself. Laban showed partiality. Now, the next story I wanted to, to look at comes from many centuries later when David had become king. And so in this, I think this is 2 Samuel, David had just become king and his old nemesis Saul, the first king of Israel was dead. And he had a grandson named Mephibosheth. That's one of those names that you just pray you can pronounce in the pulpit in the moment, Mephibosheth. Now Mephibosheth was a possible heir to the throne, a possible usurper of the throne. If anyone could, you know, rally people to support David's line again, it might be him who would get the crown. So there's not a ton of uh, good reason for David to show him kindness rather than to show him swift justice, like a rebel under a king. Mephibosheth uh, was dropped when he was a child by his nurse when she was fleeing and was lame in both his feet. So he was actually a, a lowly, sad person. Now, like Laban invited the servant of Abraham to his table, so David invited Mephibosheth there, Mephibosheth to his table. David heard of Mephibosheth, uh, who was his dear friend Jonathan's son, and he sent for him. And Mephibosheth fell to his face in front of David in fear. But we read in 2 Samuel 9, verses 7 to 8, David said to him, do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? So David showed mercy to Mephibosheth for the sake of the one he loved at no gain to himself. So those are two stories of guests and hosts that bring out this idea of partiality and mercy. And James, we'll come back to those later, but James is showing us here in chapter two that real faith in Christ shows mercy for the sake of the one we love. But unmerciful partiality is entirely incompatible with faith in Christ. So we're gonna look at this passage in two chunks. Um, and two points. Point number one, the posture of partiality, and two is the posture of mercy. And we're going to start with verses 
1 through 7. So let me read those again. James 2, verses 1 to 7. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, stand over there, sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Now, James is painting us a picture that at first sounds hypothetical, but then we realize it's not when he says, but you have dishonored the poor man. He's showing us what the, the, the trouble that these churches in the dispersion were actually facing, what they were like. They were showing partiality to people that they thought could benefit them. And the, the picture is very clear. A rich man comes in and a poor man comes in. Rich man gets treated with honor. The poor man is dismissed and overlooked. Now, these churches that James is writing to, they're in the dispersion, remember? They're scattered. They're not in their home. They're in the minority ethnically and religiously. They are not the um, top dogs socially, wherever they are at. And they, so they didn't have honor and standing in their wider communities. And James tells us in verses six and seven, he says, these rich people you're doting on, they're the ones causing you trouble. They're the ones dragging you down and insulting your savior. So why are you lavishing honor on the rich instead of the poor? Well, they're doing it because they're showing partiality. They're taking by giving. They're taking for themselves by giving to others. Yeah. Like Laban, they see the shining ring on their fingers and they think, if I show kindness to this person, I can get something for myself. It is absolutely the wisdom of the world to ally yourself with the rich and the powerful so that you can increase your own social standing. You can increase your own financial situation. It's like LinkedIn as a life philosophy. You just network yourself to the movers and shakers and influencers in your field and industry so that you look better by association. That's showing partiality. Partiality gives kindness and honor, but only so it can take for itself. But that's just one side of the partiality coin. The flip side of that coin is less obvious, but just as insidious. Instead of allying, allying ourselves to the rich for our own advantage, it's actually also very common to ally ourselves to the poor for our own advantage. And this too is partiality. We tend to call it virtue signaling on Twitter. It's easy to publicly show care and kindness for the poor and lowly so that our own social standing will increase. So our tribe will look at us and say, ah, oh, look, they're one of us. They care about the same things that we do. Partiality gives kindness and honor, but only so it can take for itself. 
It's not mercy, it's mercenary. And partiality is incompatible with faith in Christ. No matter which side of the coin it falls on, whether it's to the rich or to the poor. Look at verse four. He says, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Now the word for make distinctions is the same word that we found in chapter one that the ESV translates as doubting. It says, if any of you, uh, you know, lacks wisdom, ask God, let him ask in faith with no doubting. Same word as distinctions in Greek. And it's literally the word for two and the word for judgments squished together. It's a double judgment or a, a split judging. So back in chapter one, if we ask God for generosity, but we doubt, we're making a split judgment. We're on the one hand saying, we believe that God is who he says he is. And on the other hand, we're saying, but I don't really believe that he'll treat me according to his own standard. It's a split judgment. And when we treat people with partiality, we are also making a split judgment, a distinction. On the one hand, we say that we believe that God is merciful and impartial. And on the other hand, we don't treat people with mercy and impartiality. And if Jesus, the Lord of mercy, is the object of our faith, if he is the rule by which we govern our lives, the image to which we are being conformed, then to exalt the exalted and lower the lowly is incompatible with our faith because it's incompatible with Christ, the lifter of the lowly. That's why James goes on in verse five to say, listen, my beloved brothers, and listen, it's the same word as hear um, from the last chapter, hear and do. He's saying hear and implied, do, do this. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? Well, hasn't he? Didn't God say in the Old Testament, I didn't choose Israel because they were many and mighty, but because they were small and ridiculous. They didn't have anything to offer me. That's why I chose Israel. And what were the first words out of Jesus's mouth in the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. God has chosen the poor in the world to be rich in faith and literally to inherit the kingdom of heaven. So holding our faith in Jesus with integrity, a faith that has a wholeness to it, means not preferring the rich over the poor. It means honoring the poor because Jesus honors the poor. Lifting the lowly because Jesus lifts the lowly. And partiality to anyone based on how they can advance our own standing is sin. So what James is advocating is not for partiality, but for mercy. That's the opposite that we're to reach for. So if this feels slightly political, it's not. I'm not preaching about social justice warriors or bleeding hearts or patriots or capitalism or socialism. This is the gospel. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. Second Corinthians 8, 9. For you know 
the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake, he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. It's the gospel. Philippians 2, 5 through 11. If you've been around Christchurch since March, you'll know this. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the Father. So our standard for justice Our standard for how we treat people, not with partiality, is Christ. It's it's not equity. It's not fairness. It's not deserving. And it's not social advance or financial gain. It's Christ. At no advantage to himself, Jesus gave up more riches than we can fathom and became poor. He didn't just become poor by becoming human. That is poverty compared to the riches of the divine nature. He also became poor by becoming a poor human in the most oppressed ethnic and religious group of its day. And he literally was homeless. The son of man has nowhere to lay his head. And he did all that so that we could become rich in faith so we can inherit the kingdom of God at no advantage to himself. The only thing Jesus gets out of that deal is us. (laughs) He became poor so we can become rich. How could we possibly treat the poor among us any differently? If we treated them differently, we would not be following Jesus. That leads us to the second half of the passage in our second main point. Number two, the posture of mercy from verses 8 through 13. Let's read those again. If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For justice is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. I love that last line. (laughs) Mercy triumphs over judgment. So we're talking about the posture of mercy, and I'm not using the language of posture just to be um, poetic. I use the language of posture because posture reflects something that is true about us. Posture reflects a reality. So if you slept very poorly last night and wake up with a crick in your back, your posture is going to reflect what's true about you that day, 
right? If you um, sit hunched over in a cubicle five days a week, your posture will reflect what's true about your work life, right? You develop the shoulder thing of the cubicle sitters. And if you have received mercy by faith in Christ, your posture will reflect that reality. As I said earlier, James is demonstrating that the opposite of partiality is mercy. So partiality moves towards someone with a grasping hand to take. And mercy moves towards someone with an open hand to give. Partiality moves towards someone because of our need. Mercy moves towards someone because of their need. God didn't send Jesus to die for our sins because he needed us to worship him. He sent Jesus because we needed him to save us. If you feel low today, like a failure, like you don't have any strength left to offer, your need compels Jesus toward you, not repels him from you. It's deeply true about Jesus. And we can only be merciful people like that if we are people who hold the faith in Christ. We can give, we can move with a posture of an open hand to give because of someone's need only if we've received from God's own mercy and generosity. Holding the faith in Christ with integrity, a whole, or to use James, one of James' favorite words, a perfect faith, a complete faith, means living as ones who have received from God's generosity and treating people according to that standard. Now I bring up standard because James brings it up and he starts talking about the law. The law is a standard, right? According to which we treat people, according to which we act. So James introduces us in verse eight to the royal law. We'll come back to that later. It's important. And he reminds us in verse 12 of the law of liberty, which we've already seen in the last chapter, in chapter one, verse 25. So when Jews in his day and Christians, really Jewish Christians especially, hear the word law, they immediately think of the law of Moses. But James seems to have coined a phrase, the law of liberty, because he's not talking about the law of Moses. He's talking about the law of Moses as interpreted, supplemented, and fulfilled by Christ. The law of liberty is the law of Moses interpreted, supplemented, and fulfilled by Christ. And he calls it the law of liberty because we are freed from condemnation under the law. And we're free to actually start keeping it. To actually be able to do it. Not to earn something, but because we've been given something. Remember when Jesus was tested by the Pharisees and they asked him which of those 613 laws in the Old Testament is the greatest. And he said, the greatest one is to love God with everything you've got. He quotes the Shema that we studied it several weeks ago, Deuteronomy 6, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. 
And then he said, the second greatest is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's what James calls the royal law. And these two commands put together, loving God with everything you've got and loving your neighbor as yourself, are the heart of what James is referring to when he says the law of liberty. He learned from his big brother, he learned from his master, that those two laws sum up all the law and the prophets. Loving God and loving neighbor. I think I said loving neighbor. Loving, loving neighbor. (laughs) And the purpose then of those two laws, the purpose of all the laws, the purpose of the law of liberty as given to those who are free in Christ is to conform us to the image of Christ. That's what the law is for. The law is meant to train us into the shape of the lawgiver. Paul in Galatians says the law is like a schoolmaster training up a student to be like Christ, ultimately. And James said in chapter one that by his own will, God brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So in other words, if, if you hold the faith in Christ, you are a new creation. You have been brought forth by the word of truth. And you are one who has received the implanted word. And this law is now written on your hearts. So we're not talking about keeping the law, even a good law, the law of liberty, to earn salvation. We're talking about keeping the law because you have salvation. It's like the Ten Commandments. Start with, I am the Lord your God who freed you from the land of Egypt. God's law has always been to teach free people how to live as free people, not to make people free. Though there are many laws, there is one lawgiver. This is James's logic when he's talking about the law of murder and the the law of uh, adultery. He says, if you break one, you break them all because they all have one source. And they all have then, if they have one source, one purpose, and that is to conform us all to the image of Christ. And so if we've broken even just one of those laws, we don't look like Jesus anymore. And we're guilty of breaking the whole thing. So James moves to the conclusion of this section and says emphatically to us, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Now, grammatically, he could have said, so speak and act as those who are to be judged. But he he said so twice to drive point the home of both. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. So one day we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, the righteous judge, and we're going to give an account of every speech and every action, every word and every deed. So we'll give an account of our words. Jesus says in Matthew 12, 36 to 37, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. 
We'll give an account of our words. And we'll give an account of our deeds. I want to read a longer section from Matthew 25. Um, He says that the Son of Man, that's Jesus, will come and sit on his throne and judge all the peoples of the earth. Now, we know he's talking about judgment because he's talking about making a distinction. He's distinguishing between sheep and goats in this story. He's separating the sheep over here and the goats over here. So let me read um, from Matthew 25, verse 34 and following. Jesus says, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And and when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. That's what Jesus says to the sheep, to those who have held the faith with integrity because they belong to him. But here's what he says about giving an account for our deeds to the goats, quote unquote, the people who you'll notice they call him Lord. We're not talking about non-Christians outside of the church context who have no idea about Jesus. We're talking about people who are faithful church attenders, call Jesus Lord, raise their hands in worship. And this is what he says to some of them. The ones who didn't live under his lordship, though they called him Lord. Verse 41 and following. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, and to the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Jesus seems a little angry or intense. Maybe anger is not the right word. There's an intensity about that story. Because nothing blasphemes the name of the one we love so much as being the people who have received mercy and refusing to show it. So now we start to understand what James says next. Back to James 2. Verse 13, for mercy, literally he says, judgment is merciless, merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Uh, I couldn't figure out a way to say what I want to say about that better than Doug Moo, who's a, a tremendous Bible scholar from Wheaton. 
So I'm just going to read you what Dr. Mu wrote. He said, the believer in himself will always deserve God's judgment. Our conformity to the royal law is never perfect as it must be. But our merciful attitude and actions will count as evidence of the presence of Christ within us. And it is on the basis of, the, of this union with the one who perfectly fulfilled the law for us that we can have confidence for vindication at the judgment. You see what he's saying? When we show mercy instead of partiality, that mercy triumphs over our judgment because our merciful speech and our merciful deeds are evidence that we're alive in Christ. They're evidence of Christ in you, the one who has fulfilled the law for you. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The word for partiality in Greek is an ancient idiom. It's literally the word to receive the face, to receive the face. Um, Another one of those two words squished together. And it means what it sounds like. To receive the face of someone is to take them at face value, to make a judgment based on what you see. In other words, it's judging a book by its cover. That's what that word literally means. So in James's example of the rich man and the poor man, The believers are guilty of receiving the face of both. They look at the rich man and they judge that book by its cover. Looks rich, got to be a good book. And they look at the poor man and they judge that book by its cover. Rich man is dressed in fine clothing and the poor man in shabby clothing. But God does not tell us that our standard for mercy is what's on the inside of the person. That's what I expected right? Doesn't it make sense if God were to say, don't judge them by the fine clothes or the shabby clothes, judge them based on their heart. Wouldn't that make sense? But he doesn't say that because we're not God. We don't see the heart. So the standard that he gave us to treat people by is Christ. And the law of liberty is there to show us how to treat people based not on what we can see and not on what we can't see, but to treat them like Christ treats us. Anything else is just playing God. He mentions treating people according to their clothes, the finery of the rich man, the shabby clothes of the poor man. And then he cites the royal law. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, why does James call this the royal law? You won't know. Nathan knows. And I'm really thankful that Nathan helped me see this in the Greek text this week. The word for royal isn't the simple adjective describing something as kingly. It's the particular word used to describe the king's royal clothes. The royal law might be more literally translated the law of the royal robe. Love your neighbor as yourself. Ultimately, the love we owe our neighbor is to minister kindness to them as if Christ himself were receiving our kindness. It's to treat them not like they're in fine clothes or shabby clothes, but in the royal robes of Christ. That's how we treat people. And that's the heart of the very mercy we have received. The first act of mercy in the Bible is God clothing Adam and Eve to cover their shame and their nakedness. And the chief act of mercy that we have received is to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. 
we come into the presence of the risen Christ in shabby clothing with nothing to offer him, no way to advance his standing or status. And he takes off his royal robe, shining and glorious, and he drapes them over our shoulders and he treats us like royalty. Who here deserves that? In John 12, this is one of my favorite two chapters, John 12 and 13. In John 12, John, he quotes Isaiah uh, 6. Remember in the year the King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up and the train of his robe or the, te- the hem of his robe filled the temple with glory, right? He, John quotes from that passage and calls Jesus that Lord, the Lord of glory whose clothing alone is so glorious that it just the hymn fills the whole temple. And he's there clothed beautifully sitting on his throne. John 12 quotes that. John 13, the next chapter, we see Jesus sitting around the table with his friends, one of whom was about to betray him. And he stands up from his seat and he takes off his clothes and he puts on the uh, robe of a servant. And then he washes their stinky feet, even Judas. The Lord of glory did that. Do you know this Lord of glory? Have you been draped in his robes, treated like a king? Do you know what it's like for the king of the universe to treat you like royalty? God says, if you do, live like it. Go and do likewise. And if you don't, if you don't know that Lord of glory, you can. It's not taking, it's receiving. You just have to open your hands and ask, and he will fill them. He's generous, merciful and gracious, and you can trust him. Let's pray. Father, um, I stand here, frankly, in awe of your mercy and kindness toward us, toward me, Um, that you should treat us with such dignity when we naturally fill ourselves with such shame is incredible. Father, make this church a church of mercy, a church of compassion. Not so we look good or get, you know, more numbers or donate, whatever. We want you to look good. And we're just glad to have received such mercy and such kindness from you. Thank you. We praise you and we love you. Amen.